IFM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Well, welcome, welcome to it. This, of course, is the DL Link Show, where we connect you through insights, information, and illumination. It is a very chilly afternoon, um, and wherever you are, wherever you're listening, I hope you're keeping well. And if you're from further afield, um, maybe the warmer part of the world, just enjoy the fact that uh, there's warmth there. Really, it is rather cold, and I just can't stop thinking about people who are not lucky enough um, to be, you know, in a in an, an environment where it's warm, and um, that is a challenge we all face, and certainly something that we are always contributing to here. Um, you know, on Chai FM, the DL Link, always working towards things. And speaking of which, um, I don't know if you tuned into a night of laughter on Tuesday night. Um, really, such a brilliant, brilliant evening. Again, it was a very cold night in Joburg, but the fact that we had so many people tuning in from all over the world or, you know, zooming in, should I rather say, um, and hearing Nick, he was amazing, Nick Rinovitz, Gilly Apter, they got us laughing. Um, we were entertained by Honey G and then the stories and the wonderful work that the DL Link continued to do. And if you did miss it, all you have to do is go to the DL Link Facebook page and it's there. Isn't that amazing? You get to enjoy the event after the event, um, which says a lot about technology. What I do want to highlight, um, which came out of the evening, besides lots of entertainment and beautiful stories, is that um, the DL Link are going to be looking at, because of COVID and because um, quite a lot of the fundraising events have had to be cancelled, you know, with the Jerusalem Marathon, the normal three C's dinner, what the DL Link is looking at is people making monthly, uh, having a, a monthly debit. Um, and really, from a small amount to a large amount, really completely up to you, but just taking the pressure off in terms of fundraising so that the deal link can continue um, with their work. So um, if you are keen, if you're interested in getting involved with a, a monthly debit for the DL link, please contact them. Um, you can email them info at dllink.co.za. That is info at dllink.co.za. And also they're putting beautiful, specially commissioned artworks on e-cards, get well cards, anniversary cards, um, and um, they are going to be on the website soon as well. So you can also email them if you're interested in those. So, yeah, so once again, an amazing show lined up for you. I don't know if you knew um, that June is a World Infertility Awareness Month. I certainly didn't know. And I also didn't know how the numbers are rising around the world in terms of, of infertility and that, in fact, the World Health Organization has recognized fertility as a worldwide public health issue. And so there are lots of questions around that. I'm going to be talking to, in a moment, Dr. Gobitz. Um, he's going to be sharing his expertise in terms of fertility. And then we're going to be talking to a cancer warrior who um, was diagnosed at a very young age. She's married. And she's going to be sharing the journey that her and her husband have been on trying to get pregnant. And what is the outcome 
twins. So that's what's coming up for you on the show today. I don't know if you have had any issues with regards to fertility, um, if you have expertise to share, but that's what we're going to be covering. So we are going to take a break. And after the break, Dr. Lawrence Gobitz will be joining us. So please don't go anywhere. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to the DL Link Show. Mickey Seberini here and looking forward to spending the next uh, 40 minutes with you, a little bit more than that. We're talking about fertility or rather infertility um, and uh, we're going to be focusing on all areas and also a cancer warrior will be joining us and sharing her story, her and her husband's story. So I have Dr. Lawrence Gobitz on the line. He's a reproductive medicine specialist and he's a fellow of the College of Obstetricians and Gynecology. And Dr. Gobitz, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Thanks, Nikki. Great to be on your show. So very interesting, Dr. Gobitz. I had no idea that there was such a thing called World Infertility Awareness Month, which is the month of June, which says a lot about infertility around the world. Let's just start off by identifying, and perhaps you can go into a little bit more detail, what in fact is infertility? So, I mean, it's a definition, and the definition is the inability to have achieved a conception within a year. If the female is under the age of 35, it doesn't reference the age of the male. And if the female's over 35, one says, if you have not achieved a pregnancy in six months, go and seek help. So um, that's defined by the fact that we know that in most cases, if the female's under 35 and the couple, couple have been trying, within six months, 86% of patients are pregnant. And then a small percentage drag on for the next six months. So by the time you get to a year, we're sitting with about 10% of couples not actually having conceived. And that then becomes the definition. Okay. So, so would, would you, would, for people who are listening now and maybe people are trying and they're wondering, the year is really the, the amount of time you should be looking at before you would go and, and seek the help of, of a specialist. But not again, I qualify and say not if the female is older than the age of 35. And that's a, it's a very important thing because, you know, today the most important issue of why there seems to be an upswing is the fact that uh, women are delaying their childbearing. It's not normal. You know, I was born in the 50s and uh, my mother and all her friends had half-day jobs and they would sit around the poker table in the lounge playing cards and every one of them by 22 had three kids at home. So you talk to an average 22-year-old and say you must complete your family. You know, they, they haven't even finished their degrees at university and then establishing themselves in their careers and then putting some money in the bank and then eventually when they do find Mr. Wright and they do want to settle down because now they've traveled, um, you know, the average age of the female is 37, 38. And uh, that is something that unfortunately one is having difficulty getting it across because – that is modern society. And uh, interestingly, um, the reason why this all happens is because the ovary is very different to the testicle. An ovary has no stem cells. And a woman is born with a total complement of eggs. And every month she's losing hundreds of thousands of eggs. And that's why a woman ultimately goes into the menopause. So what happens is as the woman ages, so do her eggs age. And those mm-hmm. eggs therefore do not have the potential to allow normal embryos to form. So as you get older as a female, your potential goes down. 
And we know that uh, the, the average age of patients crossing our threshold are in the region of about 37, 37.2 years of age. And I'm talking again female age. Us guys, our testicles have got stem cells and you can put us in a wheelchair and roll us into our grave and I can tell you those testicles are, are still making sperm for procreation. Incredible. So, you know, and, and that's where the big difficulty is, is to try and get through to the younger girls now that fortunately, and as you've said, thank goodness, with uh, Facebook and technology, how we can get to your podcast, um, young girls today can put their eggs in the freezer. And uh, as you said, you've got a warrior coming on. And uh, interestingly, the only girls today that really willingly come off the street to freeze their eggs are those who have unfortunately a diagnosis of cancer at an early age. And we can fortunately put their fertility on hold by putting their eggs in the freezer. And once they've survived their cancer, we can then help them with IVF and their frozen eggs and get them a family. Wow. Okay. So that's very interesting. So let's, let's focus on females first because we'll get to males, um, and those who do have problem with, um, what's it called as denosuspermia or whatever it's called. Um, and we'll get there, but let's focus on females. Let's, let's look at the age because you've, you've identified the age of 35, um, and that from 35, um, and up, there could be, it's not to say that there will be, that there could be problems with falling pregnant and you have suggested this freezing of the egg. So let's go into detail. Let's look at that. You're a young female. You, it's your career. You haven't yet found a man. Um, you haven't even thought of having children or a family. It's just not in your sphere. What is involved in freezing eggs? Okay, so every month in an ovary, somewhere between 100 and 1,000 eggs enter a race. Now, in that race, those eggs are unfortunately or fortunately genetically programmed to die off when one runs ahead and wins the race because the womb is only made for one baby. So every month, a woman is losing a large number of eggs. We learned that if we could manufacture the hormone that the brain tells the ovary to grow one egg, we could rescue those eggs that are going to be programmed to die off. So we take this injection and we give it to the patient over a period of 10 or 11 days. And what happens is we then ripen maybe 15 or 20 eggs, which were eggs that that patient would have lost in that cycle anyway. And once we've scanned and we're happy with the size of the sacs that house the eggs, we know those eggs are now ripe or mature. We give a final maturation injection, and 36 hours later, we take the patient into our IVF suite where we have a theater facility. We give the patient conscious sedation, and we recover the eggs vaginally. It's a procedure that literally takes about 10 minutes. The patient is almost wide awake afterwards. It's not a full anesthetic. They feel no discomfort. And they get a little sticker on their hand with a smiley on, and on that is the number of eggs that we got. Mm. So we can then hopefully have somewhere between 15 and 20 eggs out of that cycle. But what's important to understand is that when you work with eggs in a laboratory or embryos in a laboratory, we start off, and I always describe it as a funnel. So here we have this wide funnel where we now have 20 eggs of which probably 80% of those eggs are going to be ripe. So that says we're now down to 16 eggs. So now we put the 16 eggs in the freezer, and the important thing to appreciate is 16 eggs does not equal 16 babies. 
So when you warm those eggs, you would expect 98 to 99% of them to survive the warming process, but only 50% to fertilize with the partner's sperm. And of that 50%, the funnel goes even further downwards to a more narrow exit, which leaves us with, of that 50%, we'll have 50% of those then becoming embryos. So if we've gone from 16 eggs down to 8 fertilized, we're now down to 4 embryos. And of those 4 embryos, depending on the age of those eggs, if those eggs are young, 22, 24 years old, 1 in 2 embryos will be genetically competent. But if those eggs are 35, we'll need 1 in 3 or 1 in 4 embryos to be genetically competent. And what happens is as a woman gets older, her response to the drugs is lower and they don't give us as many eggs. She may only give us eight eggs. So if you're thinking in terms of, well, I'm going to put my uh, my insurance policy in place and I'm going to have my eggs in the freezer to at least have two babies, if you are 20, you need to have 20 eggs in the freezer to hopefully give you two babies. If you are 40, we need 40 eggs in the freezer to mm. give you two babies. So, you know, it's it's not like, and people think that if I've got 40 eggs in the freezer, that means I've got a chance to have 40 babies. It is not the case. And unfortunately, you know, this is not put across correctly to patients. Patients are not counseled. And sometimes they've got six eggs in the freezer at 40, and they think, well, they've got their whole family in front of them. They don't have it. You know, they need to be counseled correctly. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's very important information. So probably what you're looking at is they wouldn't just go in once to have eggs extracted. Maybe you would do it a, a few times to make sure that you've got a few batches of eggs, um, and hopefully better success if, if the funnel, um, dwindles the numbers down that way. Yeah, Nikki, you're absolutely correct. The only problem is that, um, you know, we see it, and, and, and IVF is, is, is not a walk in the park on the one hand, but in today's times, it's actually quite an easy process. And whether it's IVF or stimulating to get eggs out to put in the freezer, they're all one and the same thing. Um, once you've got the eggs, if you now go and fertilize the eggs with a partner sperm, then it becomes IVF. But to get to the eggs, they, they have exactly the same process as someone undergoing stimulation for IVF. But, yes, if you're 40, you may need, if you only get six eggs out of each stimulation, you know, are you going to do this five times or six times to get close to 40 eggs? No one will do that. Firstly, it's extremely costly if you work it out at six times. And secondly, we know the dropout rate's quite high even after one attempt because it's a lot that the patient feels they go through. So those that are psychologically set on the fact that they know they've got to put a number in, they'll do it two or three times. The younger girls invariably, that's why it's important if you're going to freeze eggs to freeze them as young as you possibly can. Because if you freeze them at 20 and you use them when you're 40, your success is equal to the age that your success was at the time that you froze the eggs. So if you're now 40 and you take those 20-year-old 20 year eggs out the freezer, your chances are the same as if you were 20. Because, mm-hmm. you know, in the freezer there's, 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 there's no shelf life. It's not like Woolworths where we put a use-by date or sell-by date on it. You can leave them in the freezer for as long as you want to. So, yes, um, if you're older and in order to at least have two kids out of it, you've got to do the stimulation a few times to get the prescribed number of eggs to at least give you, because of that funnel, your ultimate number. Sure. Dr. Gobitz, we're going to take a break. Um, after the break, let's continue with this discussion. It's fascinating. We'll also be um, highlighting, you know, the difficulties that men have in terms of uh, fertility. So please stay with us. 
High FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to the DL Link Show. I have Dr. Lawrence Gobitz on the line. He is a specialist when it comes to reproductive medicine, as well as a fellow of the College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. We're talking about um, the fact that uh, the month of June is World Infertility Awareness Month, that the numbers are going up in terms of um, uh, couples being infertile, well, finding difficulty really in, in falling pregnant. Um, and Dr. Gobitz, you were saying a lot of it has to do with the fact that that couples are trying to fall pregnant a lot later in life. So we were talking about freezing these eggs um, and that you were obviously suggesting the earlier, the younger you are, the better it is. Uh, you've got better eggs to work with um, and the better the, the outcome will be. Before we do move towards me, just one thing, with all of your experience, are you finding that there is a turn of the tide, so to speak, in that young women are starting to be proactive and say, you know what, I'm going to freeze my eggs. Are you, I mean, we We've discussed it, but are you are you seeing that trend? Nikki, the only trend we're seeing is that you have your single 38-year-olds and single 39-year-olds who've realized that they're reaching the end of their reproductive career and they've now woken up to say, you know what, a few eggs in the freezer are going to be better than no eggs in the freezer. Mm-hmm. And obviously we counsel them appropriately. So the move currently is more the reproductively older female. Now we know today our 40-year-olds are like our 20-year-olds 30 years ago. You know, and when they look at themselves, they say, but how can my eggs be old? And what do you mean by that? So at the end of the day, that's the group coming forward. But what I'm trying to get across is that we need to get to the under 30s. Who yeah. haven't yet settled in with their lives, who haven't yet got Mr. Right, um, or the correct partner, whatever that may be. And at the end of the day, that's who should be putting the eggs in the freezer. And, um, the, 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 the patient of that age group, unfortunately, is those patients with a cancer diagnosis where we do fertility preservation related to the diagnosis of cancer, be it in the male or in the female. So we're finding that the young eggs in the freezer are, are, are cancer patients. And fortunately, the oncologists now are quite aware of it because we are part of an international oncology consortium. So the oncologists in the past um, would just take the patient and immediately put them on chemotherapy, not thinking in terms of, well, maybe this young woman wants to have a family. So they refer them directly to us. We see them immediately. We stimulate them, put the eggs in the freezer, and then they go and uh, have their chemo or radio or whatever it is or surgery. So that's the young group presenting to us. The older group presenting to us often come in too late. So, so age. So you've, you've, you've described so well, I mean, what happens to the eggs and we have limited amount of eggs, et cetera, et cetera. Is there a way though, um, that we could look after our eggs? So in terms of lifestyle, in terms of, um, the way we eat, stress levels, could that have an impact on the quality of eggs and the longevity of our eggs or are they not related? No, they don't seem to be related. And, and, and the, I think a woman has got two ages. She has a chronological age, which in this country is easy. You just look at the ID number and we can tell you how old you are. But you have a genetic age. In other words, I think it all happens at the time of conception where the female egg age has been predetermined and the rate at which your uh, loss occurs is genetic. And there are some women who will lose much slower than others. 
And uh, that is why some women at 40 will still have a very good store. It doesn't mean that those eggs are genetically more normal because they're 40-year-old eggs, but it does mean that we'll have a better chance at achieving a pregnancy for her because it is a numbers game. And the more eggs we can get, the better the chance we'll find a normal embryo. So the younger you are, the more genetically competent the eggs are, the less eggs you need in the freezer to give yourself your two children. The older you are, the more eggs you require. So the thing of, of your, your, your genetic age, as I say, is a difficult one to predict on the one hand, although today gynecologists are becoming more aware of it. And what you can do is we do what is called an enteral follicle count. So on vaginal ultrasound, we can look at the ovaries. And we can see these little egg structures in the ovaries, which are very simple, and you can count them. And we unfortunately see young girls with low egg counts. Now, that's a girl at 24 that the gynecologist should be referring that patient to a fertility unit. And then give the patient the advice and let the patient make the decision. There is a hormone that we can measure, and the hormone is called AMH, anti-Mullerian hormone, which also correlates well with a female egg age. Um, it does not uh, in any way give us an understanding of what the genetic age is, but it tells us what their store is like. So we do have a biochemical marker, and that's an easy one to do, but we don't want patients just to do the AMH and then go and look on the Lancet app and look at the level, and now they don't know what to do with the level because they've gone and asked for the level. No doctors asked for it, and unfortunately, doctors, doctors are not happy for patients to do their own blood tests and then ask the doctor to interpret the result. Mm-hmm. So I just caution on what I'm saying, not to, not for anyone now to run to a lab and do the AMH level, which is just purely a blood test. Yeah, no, I mean, obviously you would have to be, you would have to do that with, with a specialist in conjunction with your, with your gynecologist. But I'm just, as you, as you're speaking, I'm just thinking about changing the way, um, family planning, um, will move forward because family planning maybe has to be something that is proactively done from a young age. As you say, if, a, if from one of these scans, they can, a gynecologist can see a limited amount of eggs at a young age, that you would be proactive. I mean, it really turns things around uh, Dr. Goberts you know we, we with COVID-19 we're seeing how the world is changing and how we're going to start changing the way we do things and now with the technology and what we have access to in terms of w- with scans and, and everything that you've been talking about if that would actually change if a proactive family planning from a young age very interesting to see how that would play out. No, well, that's a, that's a brilliant suggestion. In other words, it, this should play, this should be the role of your average gynecologist who's seeing a young girl for contraceptive advice. And that gynecologist should scan those ovaries and have a look at the antral follicle count. And, sure. Uh, and, and why I say is that we, we have our own egg bank here for donor eggs for, for recipient couples where the woman's in her mid forties. Um, we get them pregnant with the young, healthy donor eggs. And, uh, we see a lot of young women today with low egg reserve and we don't know why. And what we don't know is, is this a new thing? Um, or is this perhaps something that we would have seen had I taken my mother and her friends and looked at their egg counts when they got into the uh, late 20s after completing their families by 22? So, you know, is this something that's been with us all along? Is this something that's new? And again, I go back and I didn't answer your question. Is there something that we can do? Although I did say I think it's genetic. Um, you know, it's the same thing. You see patients who smoke 60 cigarettes a day with six children. 
and they're also mm-hmm. drinking three liters of brandy a day and they've got six children. So, you know, lifestyle again, I say, I don't believe it's, it's that. I think it's, it's egg age and it's, it's genetics and we need to play a role as gynecologists to pick out those girls that have a low store, those women, should I say, that have a low egg store at a young age and get them referred to reproductive medicine specialists. Mm, mm. Yeah, and I just think it's, it's perhaps a change in mindset, you know. It's like looking at, oh, well, you've got problems with your iron or you've got high cholesterol or you've got – you're just identifying certain areas and you – kind of change the way you do things along the way. It really is quite a, a, a radical, I think, amazing approach. But let's move, because we don't have much time left, let's, let's move to men and male issues. What, what are you, what is the most common problem that you're finding in terms of infertility with males? It's misinterpretation of a normal semen analysis by people who don't know how to read semen analyses. Oh. Yeah. So, uh, unfortunately, you go and do a semen analysis at a pathology laboratory, and because one parameter is low, the computer prints out a report, and then the doctor reads a report. And then the computer now has told you that there's a problem with the male. But in fact, there's nothing wrong with that male. And the fact, the problem is his wife's 44. So, you know, so at the end of the day, a lot of males are pronounced subfertile or infertile by a piece of paper. Which And there is only one thing, Nikki, that says to me that that male sperm is good and that's a positive pregnancy test in his partner. And there's only one thing that says to me the female ovulated and that is a positive pregnancy test in that woman in the two weeks after the cycle of ovulation. So on paper, we have – how do we know what's normal? So the World Health Organization helped us. They looked at 5,000 couples who conceived within a year where the female was under the age of 38, and they went to every male and got a specimen, and they were able to draw a bell curve. And the 5% of the worst specimens that achieved the pregnancy, those are our normal levels. But we know there's a lot of males walking around with subfertile sperm, but the female compensates for the male. It doesn't work around the other way around. In other words, yeah. we don't get Superman compensating for subfertile females. So, on the one hand, it's how have you interpreted that semen analysis, number one. Number two, if you satisfy the criteria, and that is where the sperm parameters are at least above that 5% of the bell curve that we use as our normal levels, and there has not been a pregnancy in a year, it's not necessarily the male. I mean, if we know, we know that there are certain counts, very low counts, very, very no motile sperm, um, very poor percentage of normal shapes, um, where we could say, listen, this is playing a role. And we know if we look at it, one-third is male, one-third is female, and one-third is a combination, male and female. So one, one's got to be careful how you interpret it. And often we see males that have been referred to us because there's no sperm, and when we do the proper semen analysis, there's nothing wrong with the guy. In the meantime, the poor lady's got TB of her pelvis and her tubes are blocked. Hmm. So, you know, you've got to look at it holistically. You can't yeah. just look at one factor and say, oh, here's where your problem lies. Yeah. So just because we're going to say goodbye now, but just based on what we've said, um, look at your age. 
Look at how long you've been trying to fall pregnant. Um, get the right advice. Go to the right people who are going to be reading the reports correctly. And also for people who are listening, you know, young women who are listening, who have these incredible careers or a, an idea of planning life and not taking family planning into consideration, you know, to really start to consider um, freezing eggs from a young age. I mean, I've never had this discussion before, and, and I think it's a very important discussion to have. So I, I thank you, Dr. Gobitz, for bringing that onto the show today, because I, I think that we've left a lot of uh, uh, room to think, um, you know, for our audience in terms of family planning. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Thank really, you. It's been, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. I hope we'll have you on the show again. Thanks, Nikki. Have a lovely day. Thank you, and you too. Dr. Lawrence Gobitz, who is a reproductive medicine specialist and a fellow of the College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. How do you feel about that? Isn't that incredible um, that uh, a lot of the time put down to women who are having children, trying to have children later on in life, freezing eggs, and that eggs, freezing eggs is something that can happen from a younger age. There would be more success. And how, what would it look like in terms of infidelity and or having difficulty falling pregnant if women froze their eggs at a younger age. Really a lot to think about. Wow. Okay, we are going to take a break, and then we're going to hear a story of a couple, uh, a young woman in her early 30s who got breast cancer, um, and she, um, her and her husband were trying to have a family and the route that they took. So we're going to take a break, a quick song, um, and then after that song, we'll be talking to our guest, and that is Kate and Julian Diaz, or Diaz, so stay with us. Hi, FM. Your station of choice since 2008. Well, thank you so much for staying with us. If you have just tuned in, this is the DL Link Show, where we connect you through insights, information, and illumination. And if you've been listening, well, welcome back. Um, today, we're focusing on fertility. Um, in fact, the month of June, believe it or not, is the World Infertility Awareness Month. And interestingly enough, the World Health Organization has recognized fertility as a worldwide public health issue. Um, and we had a very interesting discussion with Dr. Lawrence Gobert. So we're continuing with the discussion, but very much from a personal story, personal experience point of view with our breast cancer warrior, um, Kate Diaz, and she has her husband um, join her, and that is Julian. And we're delighted to have both Kate and Julian on the show this afternoon. Good afternoon, guys. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thanks, Nikki. Thank you, Nikki. It's nice to be on the show. Well, it's so interesting, really. I mean, I'd love to. I'm really looking forward to hearing your story and just tying it up with what Dr. Gobitz had to say. So let's start off, Kate. I mean, you were 32 years young when you were diagnosed with breast cancer. I mean, that must have come as a huge shock. Walk us through it. Um, yeah, it it came as a hell of a shock because there's no history of cancer in my family whatsoever. Um, and... It's, you know, happily living my life, doing my thing, and then found a big lump um, in my right breast, um, getting into the shower and stretching, and I felt it. And then um, I had a friend staying with me and my husband at the time. She was just spending the week, and um, I called her immediately, and I said, come, just come feel this. And she said, no, it's probably a cyst. We get them in our 30s. I've had one. Just go get it drained. And I actually left it for a week because I had um, clients here from overseas. Um, I plan weddings and events. 
So I had clients in Cape Town for the week and we were seeing venues and meeting suppliers and things like that. Um, and I thought, oh, I'll just do it next week. I'll go see my doctor next week. And then went the following week, saw her. Um, she said, yeah, it's so quite a cyst. It's presenting like a cyst, but obviously, you know, go to radiology, check it out, which we did. And l- my world fell apart that week pretty much. Yeah. Um, they realized it was quite a sizable tumor and it was absolutely cancerous after they did a biopsy. And then the roller coaster started, which was incredible. I mean, the, the, um, team that mobilized within one month. We had a surgery plan. We had a treatment plan. We had everything within one month. So, uh, from the 10th of October to the, um, 10th of November, I, I, you know, went through the process and then had a double mastectomy on the, with reconstructive surgery on the 10th of November. So it was literally hmm. a month later that all happened. Hmm. Yeah. And after the surgery, was there any other follow up treatment? Yeah, so basically what happens is once they get the tumor out, I mean, there are usually two ways they can do it. They can either shrink the tumor first and then do surgery or do surgery and and then, you know, follow that up with some form of treatment once they've got their hands on the tumor. And it's really up to your surgical team and your oncologist to kind of, along with with you as well, you know, decide what that's going to be based on all all the things that present during all the tests. Um, So once they got the tumor, we had to do, quite a few intensive tests to see basically if I needed to have chemo or not. Um, and all the, the fish tests and the HER2 tests and all these hormonal tests came back. And um, I was so close to being on the fence of not needing chemo, but it, it was basically too close to call. So I had to do about a year's worth of chemo. Sure. Wow. You know, it's not often that we have a partner on the show. So I'm, thank you, Julian, for coming onto the show. Just from your perspective, we hear it from the warrior's perspective to be the husband, to find out that your young wife has got breast cancer, a double mastectomy, a year of chemotherapy. How does it make you as a husband feel uh, uh, when you have that kind of journey ahead? Well, I think for me, uh, you know, that it was, it was a shock, and I, I wasn't sure how to 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 respond. My main thing was to to see the light at the end of the tunnel, to know that she was going to pull through. That was my main concern. The, mm-hmm. the journey was was secondary for me. Whether it was we needed to go through chemo together, double mastectomy for me, I just wanted to make sure that you know she would still be a part of my life at the end of it. So. Um, I just I was I was there for her as much as I as much as much as I could be. I got I made sure that our friends rallied around her and provided her with love and support, family as well. Um, throughout the whole experience, um, I was sending uh, voice messages to our network of friends and family um, because what we realized is that with something like this, when you open yourself up and allow people to be there for you, then they will be there for you, and it's very incredible. Important. A lot of people keep this secretive they don't like to talk about it and we took the different stance it's just like you know let everyone know what we're going through be open about it be positive um as soon as we could be positive because you know kate's um, diagnosis was uh was wasn't uh it wasn't as severe as it could have been so um she was going to pull through it so we could be positive um and uh, we just kept the communication lines open and people just responded so well they were they just the outpouring of, of love and support um, was just incredible. You realize um, in situations like like these, 
um, who your friends are and that you are surrounded by so many special people in your life. Even people that you haven't heard from in years, they end up appearing out of nowhere uh, for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Extraordinary how love and support and connection can take you through most things in life. Really, we, we hear that over and over again. Um, Kate, it sounds like you were very much building or very successful within your career. You know, this, you were mm. career focused. Had you thought of planning a family up until then? Had you been trying or hadn't it really crossed your minds at that stage? Um, well, we got married in 2014. 2014. 2014. Yeah. So we'd been trying since 2014. Okay. Diagnosed end of 2017 to have a child. And, um, you know, I followed the usual, I'd say, procedures with, you know, going through my gynae and then being put on Clomid to stimulate egg production and did that for three months. And then we eventually moved across to the Cape Fertility Clinic where we then started artificial insemination. And we did six rounds of that. And with six miscarriages later, I kind of got tunnel vision. You know, you think someone's kind of concentrating on your reproductive organs. You kind of forget to go to your gynae for your checkup because they check mm-hmm. everything else. You know, they check right. your breasts. Sure. So I really got tunnel vision in that sense. And, you know, we were just trying to process each miscarriage because it all happened right before the scan when you go to hear the baby's heartbeat. It kept on happening and happening. So, you know, the time uh, we decided to take a break and just to give my body a break, um, not that it was IVF or anything, but it was still, you know, having to process each little miscarriage. And then I had to do two DNCs. So I had to go in and have, you know, what was growing, they surgically removed. Mm-hmm. So that was quite scary. So, yeah, when we it was when we took that break that I then got to focus on myself a bit and found the lump. Yeah, I think the last wow. the last miscarriage was in July, and then you were you found the lump in, in, October. The, in September, end October. of September, October, October, October yeah. yeah. Sure. Um, uh, Kate and um, Julian, we're going to take a quick break. After the break, let's find out, um, you know, how after the treatment, what steps you took, and how it is that you had this incredible miracle take place in your life. So please stay yep. with us. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. This is the DL Link Show. Welcome back. I have Kate and Julian Diaz on the line. Um, Kate is sharing her cancer journey with us and together as a couple also sharing, sharing their journey of, um, starting a family whilst on a journey of, uh, cancer treatment and, and beyond. So, so Kate, before the, the diagnosis, you had been trying six miscarriages, really a, sounds like a very challenging time and then the diagnosis. Um, yeah. And, and you were taking a break. So what was the journey from there on? Um, were you freezing eggs? Were you, did you decide what, what, what was the step after one year of, of chemotherapy? Well, obviously before chemo, um, you know, it has such a intense effect on your body. So we wanted to preserve anything I could in terms of, um, eggs. So we, uh, I spoke to my fertility clinic in Cape Town, the Cape Fertility Clinic. We decided that we would, um, harvest and freeze eggs. So I basically did the first step of IVF. Um, and then those would be kept aside and just understanding how my cancer was, um, estrogen positive was driven by estrogen. I would then need to also take a five year. I wouldn't be able to have children myself for five years. Um, and, that was kind of a hard blow because, yeah. you know, obviously it would have been nice to have, have carried um, a baby at some stage. But, 
you know, we were dealt these cards and we kind of had to figure out what we were going to do. So we froze eggs before chemo because during chemo, my um, everything, my whole reproductive system would be basically shut down and, and put on hold, so to speak. So we had eggs on um, on ice. And then during chemo, I think we were about three quarters of the way through treatment. We decided surrogacy seemed like a really good option for us. And we started investigating that um, and looking into it. And we had dinner with some really good friends of ours the one night. Um, and it was quite a long, lengthy dinner, which, you know, ended up in the lounge with more wine and more chatting. And um, it was late. And my friend asked me, Nina, she said, uh, you know, so what's the next, you know, plan? What's happening next in life? And I said, well, we're going to look at surrogacy. And I explained to her how the whole surrogacy thing works. And then she just looked at me. She's like, well, I'll do it. Wow. So I was like, okay, but you know, this is picking up my laundry. <laughs> and she's like, no, I'll do it. It sounds like something we'd be, yeah, I'd totally do it. And I, I kind of just left it. And then Jules and I left and we got into the car. And obviously I immediately was like, Jules, Nina wants to be our surrogate. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I was—I mean, I've—I've I've known them for a bit longer than than Kate. I've known them since before we got married, and I just—they're just, they're just inc- an incredible couple. They have two little bo- boys of their own, and I—they're uh, just incredible parents, wonderful people. And I just thought, after having—we—we had already begun the surrogacy journey. We'd already um, looked at a couple of profiles of potential surrogates in Joburg and Durban, and we would—we were ready to start that journey. Mm. And then to know that there was an option of, of doing this with people that that not only in Cape Town, but also people that we loved and would, mm. you know, would, we would be who would join us on this journey and, and would be a part of our lives somehow for the rest of our lives. I just thought that would, it was just incredible. Yeah. Oh, first prize, eh? What a yeah. gift. What a gift. So then the, the, the process began. And um, yeah. how, how did that play out? So obviously I had, you know, eggs in the freezer kind of thing, and we had to have all the conversations that you wouldn't normally have with friends. <laughs> we had to, you know, that they were very clear that this, they wanted the pregnancy to feel like it was our pregnancy, even though Nina would be pregnant. Um, we would be making all the tough decisions. Um, you know, we had to sort of a dinner and have conversations about elective abortion, what would happen if something was wrong with the fetus. Um you know, how would Nina carry on through the pregnancy? Um, so what was that? Well, they, they would do whatever we wanted them to do. They said, as Kate said, this was going to be our pregnancy and they would not tell us what they would do in our situation. Yeah. So we wouldn't feel judged in any way. Um, and it was all also, I mean, we had a surrogacy lawyer involved. We had a contract that we went through. We all had to speak to a psychologist, psychiatrist. We also, yeah. So we, we went to the, to the surrogacy lawyer and as part of the, the whole thing, we also had to speak to, uh, psychologists, um, and, and, and have her deem us as fit parents. And also, she also spoke to, to our friends, um, John and Nina and have them and, and just deem them as, as being fit to go through this, that they would be able to psychologically go through this pregnancy as a couple and, 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 mm. you know, give a, the baby away to someone else at the end of it. Yeah. So it was very well regulated and, and, um, we followed all, all the steps. All the, the steps. Yeah. No, it's, it's an amazing, South Africa have an amazing yes. system. 
which it's, I wish. It's, listen, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful story because I mean, we have to fast forward, but fast forward, you now have twins. Yeah. And, so. uh, and isn't that incredible? That's, that's no. just amazing. So yeah. the funny thing is we only had two eggs on ice and, you know, two embryos, two embryos sorry. And the, the, the fertility clinics always just want to put two in. So it increases your chances. And at one stage we were going to put two in and then, Literally, you know, a couple of days before Nina said, guys, I think, you know, I'm pretty fertile. You're going to end up with twins. Let's just put the one in. If it splits, it's meant to be. If it doesn't, you're going to get one amazing child that at least, you know, we, we feel like we've helped, helped you get. And two weeks after, um, the embryo was, was implanted into Nina, it, it split, <laughs> which was hilarious <laughs> because. Wonderful. Oh, absolutely wonderful. So we were just like, oh my God, this is hilarious. Twins all around. And we now have, um, two amazing little one-year-old identical twin girls. Oh, well, congratulations, guys. It's such a beautiful story. Wow. Amazing friends. As you said, what a support system. And thank you for coming onto the show and sharing your story. It's such a, a story, a beautiful story that sometimes when you think that you have all of these challenges that Beautiful gift is just on the other side of that. So thanks, Kate. Thanks, Julian, for joining us today. And all the very best with your beautiful family. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Take care. Wow. Okay. So Kate and Julian Diaz, what a story, beautiful story to leave you with. I hope that you've enjoyed the show. So enjoyed it. It will be podcast. If you missed some of it, don't worry. Um, thank you so much to Craig. Thanks to, um, Flo for, um, the technology point of view. And thanks obviously to Lee and Colleen. And thank you to you for keeping us company. Hey, until next Thursday, just look after yourself. Stay warm. Ciao, ciao.